Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, we'll be talking with Scott Whitkopf of Frame for the Future about making effective progressive change. Scott was one of the presenters at the September 22nd Eau Claire Grassroots Festival sponsored by the Wisconsin Grassroots Network. And he spoke about communicating our values and what we need to do to leverage that, to speak and deliver our messages in a way that will make use of the best brain science we have today, approaches explored by George Lakoff and others. This is powerful technique but it's mostly ignored within the progressive fold, while capitalized on majorly by conservative groups. Scott Whitkopf speaks to us today via Skype from Chicago, Illinois. Scott, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action, and I must say it was good to have you up here at the Eau Claire Grassroots Festival. How was that for you? It was great. I really enjoyed the breakout sessions that I was able to do with George Green from Minnesota who does much of the same work that I'm doing, uh, applying cognitive science and psychology to both political and organizational grassroots communication. And George and I have never had the opportunity to work in person together, so it was great for us to be able to communicate with each other and work together, and we'll be doing more in the future together as well. So it was a great opportunity. And I think you call what you're doing progressive messaging. I'm assuming George does roughly that same thing. Or is there another more fundamental, more scientific name that you use for it? It's actually cognitive framing based on cognitive science, psychology, research, how people think, how people perceive the world around them as processed through language and the communication of ideas. And then framing is fundamentally how people think. You think through frames, metaphors, things like that talk about that more later, I'm sure. And I just call it progressive framing because I focus on the effective communication of progressive values. So are there, if it's not progressive framing, is there regressive or conservative framing as well? (laughs) So, right. There would be very simply put, there are two moral frames through which people view the world. One is what George Lakoff called conservative, other perhaps more accurate words that get away from partisan bias is a self-interest frame or authoritarian frame. So that would be conservative. And then the other is progressive, which can also be thought of as a nurturing frame or empathy frame or community frame. And those two frames function physically in our brains, and it's how we understand the world. And Interestingly enough, the average person is what we call biconceptual. So you have an understanding and acceptance of both frames structured in your thoughts, in your brain, and they are active in different contexts, and that's perfectly normal. However, there is a dominant frame in public discourse today, and that would be the conservative authoritarian frame. And when you say that that's the dominant frame, are you saying that's the dominant frame for both Republicans and Democrats? Yes, globally speaking, that is the dominant frame. 
So when you hear things in public discourse or on the news or statements from political leaders or even for that matter, religious leaders, those ideas are reinforcing and based on the authoritarian worldview, the conservative worldview, which is actually, it's become very powerful over about six decades, which leaves the progressive worldview to be very substantially weaker in public discourse. I've read two of George Lakoff's books, and so I have a pretty good idea of what you're talking about, but I think we need to flesh it out a little bit more for our listeners for Spirit in Action. The way that I recall him phrasing it is, on one side, you have people who believe in the authoritarian, the strict father kind of mode of thinking, and the other side, the nurturant parent. Would you flesh that out and maybe put the correct words in, since I am not trained in the way you are? Sure. So this is actually going back to the 1930s. Of course, the whole idea of frames are how we evolved. So in terms of people perceiving the world through frames, that is as old as thought itself. So it's just how we function and how our brains evolved to run our bodies and to help us function in a very complex world with very complex bodies. So that being said, though, going back to the 1930s, conservatives that were basically running the U.S. Chamber of Commerce at the time were scared to death of the New Deal. And they perceived that the New Deal could potentially see the end of conservative economic ideology and structures in terms of the free market as they knew it. As a response to the New Deal, they felt the need to start an organized campaign, and it was in essence a marketing campaign. Any good marketing campaign understands framing and understands how to influence people and influence people's perceptions, and they hit upon this campaign that was actually run by a Baptist minister from Los Angeles by the name of James Fifield, and it was called the uh, Liberty Under God campaign, and the function of that campaign was to equate capitalism with Christianity. And if you did not believe in the free market and extol the virtues of the free market, then you were not Christian. And you could not be Christian if you did not extol the virtues of the free market. And that laid the foundation for the dominance of the conservative worldview. And it's actually continued up to this day It is intentional. It is very well structured. There are millions and millions of dollars put into think tanks every year to keep it going. Simply put, as you said, that frame is based on the idea of the authoritarian father, the strict authoritarian father. And that fundamental worldview says that your success depends on your self-discipline. You alone are responsible for your success or failure. We get metaphors like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, the idea that people who are poor deserve their poverty because they are lacking in discipline, therefore they are less moral than people who are wealthy. So we see hierarchies come out of this frame, and hierarchies are very dominant in our culture today, and the conservative frame literally says that you have God over man, and man over nature, and men over women, and whites over non-whites, and straights over gays, and America over every other nation, Christianity over every other religion. The list goes on and on. So you can see how this is very dominant, and then more recessive are progressive ideas, and the progressive frame is based on empathy. 
Very simply put, that is caring for others as you would care for yourself. And that's expressed in every religion in the world. And that is very recessive. And you can see in culture, in dominant religious thought, is that the authoritarian hierarchical view is dominant and recessive is the idea of the golden rule, caring for others, community over self, that kind of thing. Interestingly, for the most part, the Bible is metaphorically divided into these two frames as well. You have the Old Testament is predominantly what we would call strict authoritarian father frame, and the New Testament is fundamentally based on the golden rule, caring for others, you know, that kind of thing. What's important in terms of our public discourse is that the progressive frame, this nurture and frame, is virtually never evoked just through normal conversation. And the conservative is. So that leads us to where we are today. I'm wondering how often it is evoked or what percentage it's evoked. I think of one place where Rick Perry, when he was running for president, I think he was still governor of Texas at the time, At one point, he talked about the DREAM Act and the idea that these people had lived all their lives growing up in the United States, that we're going to send them to a country where they don't even speak the language, send them back to Mexico or wherever. He said, you know, if you don't care about these people, you don't have a heart. And yet he is supposedly representing the conservative end of the spectrum. And yet he's talking about heart. Was he dipping into that other side, the nurturant side? Yes, and that happens all the time. So much of the pushback you see from Republicans is them having what we call in-group empathy. So no matter how conservative and strict authoritarian you may think a politician is, somebody like a Paul Ryan or a Scott Walker in Wisconsin, they have in-group empathy for their families, for their children, for their community, for their neighbors, for people that they are close to. They have the capacity for empathy. It is selective and the scope of empathy is small. But the important thing about that is that when you activate a frame, you strengthen it and weaken the other. And one of the things that I contend that progressives for the most part, have been very bad at, especially over the last decade or so, is using opportunities to strengthen empathy, but rather responding in a like frame that they are hearing. So an example of that is if you hear Donald Trump say something about immigrants, the first response from the news and Democrats who are trying to counter Trump The first thing they do is they repeat exactly what he says. And that's a really bad strategy because even if you disagree with it or you're trying to prove it false by repeating it, you are reinforcing and therefore strengthening the neural circuits that that frame is activating in people's brains. Well, let's get practical about this then. So let's assume, as recently happened, Donald Trump talks about people who are beleaguered and poor and they're trudging toward the United States. And he says there's this caravan with a lot of bad guys in there, a lot of bad hombres involved in that, and they're coming here to invade the United States. So what do people respond incorrectly, if you're interested in nurturing the nurturant perspective? How could that be done better? Yeah, sure. Great question. 
So my colleague, George Green in Minnesota, came up with this great trick to remember how to do this. And it's something that most people know, the idea of stop, drop and roll, right? So when you hear that or you read that from Trump and while you're on your Facebook page or Twitter and Trump tweets something out about, like you said, these all these bad people are coming to take over this country and take all our jobs. The first thing you do is stop and think about what he's saying. And obviously what he's saying is, first of all, it's untrue. But second of all, and most importantly, it is strategically stated in such a way as to elicit an emotional response. Typically, that emotional response is fear or to isolate. When you evoke fear and isolation, it automatically triggers the conservative frame because you start thinking about your self-preservation and your self-interest. Save me. Exactly. How do I save myself? So then you drop that frame. You need to to physically think of dropping that frame and then roll into a frame that talks about caring for others. Because here's a good trick, is if you are thinking of other people's well-being and how to care for others, you cannot act in your own self-interest. Our brains are designed with mutual inhibition in all sorts of ways, and that is one of them. Both frames cannot be active at the same time. So if you're there thinking about caring for these people and their struggles and what they've been through that have pushed them to risk their lives and abandon their past lives and look for something better, if you're thinking about caring about that, you can't be thinking in your own self-interest. So stop, drop, and roll is really effective. So then the question becomes, how do you communicate the truth to people when Trump's words are so powerful like this. The best advice is you make what George Lakoff has called a truth sandwich. You start with the truthful statement, and then you tell what the lie is, and then you finish with a truthful statement. And at no time do you repeat verbatim what Trump has said, right? So in terms of the, the immigration issue and people seeking freedom, you can just start with something very simple, such as that our nation is fundamentally a nation of immigrants seeking greater freedom. That is a truth. All of us are here because we had families from other nations come here seeking greater freedom. Then you say what the lie is. The lie is that what Donald Trump is saying is untrue. They are just seeking better lives for themselves, just as our ancestors did, and they are not a threat to us. I'm going to take my shot at that middle there, the lie. Sure. You've been told that we have to be afraid of Carlos, who's fleeing a place where his wife was killed and his child was killed, and he wants to come to the land of freedom. We're told to be afraid of him, but we shouldn't be. He is like all of us who came to this country seeking freedom and seeking a better life for ourselves. That's perfect. You finish that truth sandwich by repeating, and in the context of what you just said, you could just say, as our ancestors did, as my great-grandparents did, or as my great-great-grandparents did, or whoever. That evokes a very different view of what our role in this issue is, right? Our role as Americans in this issue is to provide the same freedoms for other people as we've enjoyed, right? That's the empathetic view of our government, our democracy. Whereas the authoritarian one that Donald Trump is trying to sell is the one that says, the freedom you have is your own. You deserve it because you earned it. And don't let anybody take it away from you. Protect yourself from the threats. Be afraid because other people are jealous and they're going to want to try and get it away from you. Two different views of freedom. 
the other point with freedom is that conservatives have a view of freedom as personal liberty and that personal liberty is paramount over everything else, including the good of the community and the nation. The progressive view of freedom is that freedom comes with a responsibility to the freedom of others. There's a piece in there that I'm not sure if I see clearly yet in our society, because I think in many ways, conservatives are better community builders than liberals, that liberals keep one foot in, one foot out, and this kind of personal freedom. That's why so many of us are spiritual but not religious, because we don't want any group to make us march in lockstep with them. Actually, I think in some ways I see liberals as being more individual liberty-oriented. Where am I going wrong there? No, you're not going wrong. Your perception is spot on. So the Republicans and the conservatives are better at organizing and communicating what is influential to people because they have had a lot of practice at living and evoking and organizing around a core belief system. So anybody that is even half paying attention can tell you what a Republican or what a conservative believes. They believe in personal liberty, small government, fundamentally. And that is what they have organized and come together around for decades. And it is fundamental to their frame. The personal liberty is, again, hierarchical, right? You are responsible for your own success. And small government is that government is immoral in that government does things to impede your personal liberty, such as taxes, regulations, et cetera, et cetera, right? So that's very consistent with their frame and their worldview. Democrats and progressives, on the other hand, are terrible at this. Which is where Frame for the Future comes in, of course. It is, and it's actually where a lot of George Lakoff's work has come in and the work that George Green has been doing. And there are other people around the country who have been looking at this. And the work that Scott Whitkoff is doing. Right. Don't forget him, since you're him. But it's really true, and here's why. Most progressives and people that consider themselves a Democrat and work within the Democratic political party system all went to college and studied what? Speech communications and physics and computer science and math, in my case. Is that the answer you wanted? (laughs) You're very close. Political science also, philosophy, communications, that kind of thing. Here's the problem with that. And I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I learned this as well. The view of the mind that we all learned at college is the 16th century view of thought. It is the Descartian view of thought, which is, I think, therefore I am. We're all taught to believe in reason and enlightenment and rational thought and human beings as rational actors. As in, if you and I are having a debate on the critical issues of the day, that all I need to do is to tell you the facts on those issues, and you will, as a rational human being, reason to the correct conclusion, which is my conclusion because what I am saying is based in fact. That is 100% a false view of how thought works. Which in other words means that rationality is not how you decide what works. Exactly. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are going to be shaking their heads when I say this, but it is a scientific fact at this point that has been confirmed a great deal People make very important decisions in their lives, not based on reason, but based on largely unconscious emotions and biases. Yes, fact has a place. There are facts. There is reason that has a place. 
and this is important, only in so much as it fits the frame in which you perceive the facts. So if the facts don't support the frame that your brain is perceiving the world in, the facts will be rejected to preserve the frame. Can you give an example of how that works? Oh, absolutely. Climate change is a perfect example of that. Scientific evidence has been overwhelming for a very long time. Human effect on our climate and the threat that that poses to our entire race and the world itself, that is very well known, very well documented. And yet there is a really good chunk of people around the world that deny the science of climate change. Why is that? Because the facts do not fit the frame that they perceive the world in. That's a, a great example. Another great example is the fact that progressives who believe in rational thought very often reject the tenets of cognitive science and framing and what that says about how people think and the role of unconscious thought in our decision making. So what that means is a lot of our listeners here for Spirit in Action are going to hear Scott Whitcoff say this, and they're going to reject it because it doesn't match their frame. It's like, no, people are rationally based. And even though your science indicates otherwise, that doesn't count because I have a frame. Right. What the science says is that your physical brain has evolved to maintain that frame as an evolutionary survival mechanism. Right. Because our, our brains evolved to have us interact, survive and prosper in a very complex world. So our evolutionary process has created this system in our brain. There's actually a lot of good research out there that hypothesizes that our brain actually changes reality to fit what our perception needs to be in order to survive in it. So a lot of the things that we see in terms of colors and shapes and it's actually not how matter exists in the world around us. It is just how our brain has programmed us to perceive it, like a desktop to the world, if you will. You're not actually seeing the bits of the computer behind the desktop working to make it happen. You're seeing an interface with the world that allows you to interact within it. And what's really important about that is that you get somebody like Donald Trump, who is so good at this on an unconscious level, it can literally change people's brains. Even if you don't accept what he's saying, even if you say, no, this is not true, the fact that he is saying it and you repeat it and you hear it over and over again will change your behavior in ways that you don't even realize because of how our unconscious biases function. And I would argue that that has been one of the great failings of progressives and Democrats over the last 20 years is seeding these very unconscious moral value ideas to conservatives and not responding in such a way as to say to people, look, here's a different way of looking at it. And you have a moral decision to make and you need to decide with what, you know, is more reflective of your values. Are you somebody who only wants to care for your self-interest or are you somebody who actually cares for the welfare of others and believes that democracy and government of the people has a responsibility to care for others in our moral worldview? That's something that I think Democrats have not done well, but in terms of um, Long-term strategy has been a really great failing over the last two decades. 
Well, we're going to transition from failing to success in just a moment, but I have to remind our listeners that this is Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, northernspiritradio.org. Thirteen and a half years of our programs for free listening and download, links to our guests. So when you want to get a hold of Scott Whitcoff, you can go to frameforfuture.com, and that's frame and then the digit for future.com. But of course, the link is, as I said, on northernspiritradio.org, along with all of those links for our guests from the past 13 and a half years. There's a place to post comments. I really do like two-way communication because I'm not of the authoritarian framework. And Scott Whitcoff will say more about that shortly. There's also a donate button. This is full-time work. And for the support of myself and our assistants, we depend upon your donations. Click on that donate button and help make sure that this goes into the future. Also support your local community radio station. I would say do that first. Community radio runs on bare bones budgets, but they perform Herculean work. You can help with your hands. You can help with your wallet. Please do that today. Again, back to Scott Witkoff, his organization, Frame for the Future. Communicate your values, his tagline he uses on his website. And we're talking about cognitive framing, progressive framing, and the difference between getting our message across successfully and having ceded the message to the conservative side. And that's not conservative necessarily politically, but organizationally, hierarchically. I did want to toss in one little thought here, Scott, as we go on, and that is that people talk about conservative and liberal in many different ways. I took a test my freshman year in college to see where I fell on the range of conservative liberal, and in the middle he had neutral, apathetic, or stupid. But just maybe five or seven years ago, I heard about the results of a study which was correlating conservative and liberalism with different things, and I thought it very interesting, and I'd like your thoughts on this, for how they measured liberalism. The larger your group that you identify as we, the more liberal you are. That's how they did it in the book. So if you just talk about yourself and your family, that's only we, then that's a very small, you're very conservative. But if it's the community, if it's the nation, if it's the whole world, all along that scale, you're getting larger. If it's only the Catholics, but if you include all other religions, Christian religions, if you include all world religions and non-religious, then you're getting more and more liberal. That's how they were trying to measure it. What do you think of that measure? I think it's pretty close. I mean, in a very broad sense, it does get to a very basic idea that to care for others requires a more global vision and a more community-oriented vision, and that is that you have a responsibility to others outside of yourself. And then, of course, you know, I alluded earlier to even the most conservative Republicans is having in-group empathy within either just a small family unit or just a circle of friends or colleagues or something. So I think that's pretty accurate. One little caveat I would put to that is that we see a lot of Democrats and progressives acting on authoritarian values, conservative values, based on issues. A good example is the union's and the uprising in Wisconsin in 2011. There were a lot of activities and actions that the unions took that very much reinforced Scott Walker's assertion that they acted in their only in their self-interest. And through acting on their own self-interest, 
in many ways, they undermined what they were trying to communicate during the whole recall period of time. So we see that even people who are progressive and consider themselves Democrats can act on conservative values to preserve in-group function and survival. In terms of the Wisconsin uprising, I think the message that the uprising should have been delivering is the good of our state deserves to be held first rather than handing money to a couple of people that what we want to do is make our communities vital. And these unions make for strong communities. Yeah, I was just going to say that's a the kind of message it should have been since they were public sector unions is that our private prosperity as a people, as a state, corporations, etc., depend on our public employees. The school teachers are a perfect example of that. There is not a single person who would consider themselves prosperous today whose life was not positively changed by either the public school they went to or a specific teacher. That would have been the message. Then it's very easy to turn around and point to what the governor and the Republicans did with Act 10 and say, this is going to harm, you know, overall prosperity of the people of the state, because you are harming that which creates prosperity for us. That should have been the message. And what's interesting is the way framing works, of course, it's all unconscious, is that Scott Walker laid out what Act 10 was about from the very first press conference he did, when he said that, yes, there are people protesting, we respect their right to protest, but also we have to think about all the hardworking men and women who showed up to work today like we expect them to, and they're doing their jobs to serve the people of Wisconsin, they're not out here throwing a fit like these angry protesters. So what what did he do there? He just said all the people protesting are acting in their own self-interest. The people who really care about the state stayed at work like we expect them to. And unfortunately, the way framing works is that it's very hard for people who are in that situation to stop, drop and roll if they are not thinking about it. So how should they have stopped, dropped and roll in response to that? The camera now turned over to you. You're part of the 50,000 people circling around the square in Madison. What should the message be? The first thing is, is that the person who frames first generally wins. It's that old adage of, you know, you can't kill an idea. Once an idea is in your head, it is very hard to get rid of it. George Lakoff's great book, Don't Think of an Elephant. That's important because when I say don't think of an elephant, you think of an elephant. Unless I yell, hey, there's a lion behind you. (laughs) Right. And what is that doing? You're changing the frame. I was part of discussion with some groups very early on with this that, It just didn't work because the labor unions had their ideas of what they wanted to do. You know, it should have been laid out in the first place that we're going to take action. And all the other unions and other groups walk off the job at the same time. I think that it's important to make that link private and public because otherwise it is only the public people who are shutting down the state. But of course, the unions, to get buy-in on that is not an obvious thing. No, it's not. Although I would say at that point, an argument could have been made that, look, the private sector unions are next. And I don't think it would have been a great leap to say that private sector unions were going to be next on the chopping block and that this is part of harming what has made the people in our state prosperous. And that is part of what unions do. That is part of their responsibility in a democracy is to care for others right through the work they do. So that's a very different message than 
making Act 10 about workers' rights. The phrase that you heard, if you marched around with the people there, I was there, my son was there regularly since he lives in Madison, this is what democracy looks like. I think that that has a certain uh, tipping power in the correct direction, but that's probably a message that needs to be refined because otherwise people might think that democracy looks like a mob rule or something like that. That's exactly right. In fact, I, I find it ironic that you know one of the really effective messages from conservatives on unions is this idea of a union thug, right? A union thug who has to coerce people into getting what they want for themselves. It's a very selfish kind of idea. And yet, you know, you talk about bad messaging strategy. I was protesting around the square as well. There were a lot of people walking around wearing t-shirts that says, I'm a union thug. Rule number one about messaging is don't use your opponent's words, and union thug are your opponent's words. Why are you calling yourself a union thug? Progressives and Democrats have this idea that, you know, they're rational, they can reason, they can be smarter than conservatives and use their own words against them. I'm sorry, you, you cannot use their words against them. They use those words because they're powerful and they have meaning. They are strategic. Well, unless you're really clever about it. So it says, let's work together. Let's all support the union hug and then it all turns into arms looping us together, and it takes away from their use of the other letter in front of those three. Yeah, and that's very, very good strategy as long as you can pull it off. You know, another thing I caution people about is the use of satire, trying to use satire and humor. I generally tell people to leave that to the Stephen Colbert's and the John Stewart's of the world because that's what they do and that's who they are. And that is how people unconsciously perceive them as being satirists. I'm a John Stewart wannabe. What can I say? Right. But <laughs> people don't perceive you as a John Stewart, right? Oftentimes, the attempts at satire will just be perceived as being mean. That doesn't help because. Remember, there are two great successes of the conservative messaging machine over the last 30 years. One is to divide the people and their government. So what I mean by that is to have people perceive government as this immoral outside entity that's going to come to take away your money, your guns, and your freedom. When the reality is that the people are the government and it ought to function that way and we ought to have a moral vision of democracy and government that communicates that. Unfortunately, progressives, for the most part, don't uh, because we don't talk about those things very much. So that's one great success is putting up a wall between the people and their government. The second one is this idea that progressives and Democrats are liberal elites. They look down their academic noses at working people. They're going to try to tell you what's better for your life, tell you what to do. They're going to use government to coerce you into doing what they think is best. So two really great successes. So when progressives and Democrats come off as saying we know better or portraying that type of emotion, it feeds into that stereotype, which of course has some basis in reality. There is some basis in reality for that kind of metaphor, stereotype image of the liberal elite. Those are things to be aware of. Well, Scott, there's a lot of threads I want to follow. I'm going to try and fit in a few of these before we run out of time. 
One of them is I see myself as a person who I think is typically seen as being on the left or the liberal or the progressive end. I see myself that way much of the time, although I have other ideas that people on the left sometimes think I'm a sellout or something like that. But I see some behavior and ideas of the progressives that are self-defeating. One is this idea that all you have to do is get the facts there and then people will march along with you. That isn't the way it works. You've already pointed out that you really have to activate frames that are internal to a person. You have to build frames and you have to not cede the frame to the other camp, so to speak. That's one of them. Are there other failings that you see? I I see this non-joiner thing, which is part of a liberal leftist, you know, anarchist, if you will, tendency as self-defeating because we don't march together. I can imagine someone listening to this and saying, you can't tell me how I should deliver my message. Yeah, and I run into that a lot. Everybody that I know that does this runs into that quite a bit as well, is this idea that I know best. That's very much a lot, you know, personal bias. Uh, It's very common, a common cognitive bias that you have a higher impression of what you know on any given topic than is real. (laughs) We all like to think that we know best. And then that functions along with the whole kind of fragmenting by issue that progressives are really good at. Everybody has their favorite issue. Everybody knows best on their issue. So when you try and get a group of diverse people, somebody wants to talk about the environment, somebody wants to talk about social justice, somebody wants to talk about health care, they want to talk about all those different issues. And if you're trying to get all those people to come together on one message for a campaign, that becomes a problem. People aren't focusing on the values that unite them on the issue. They're only focused on short-term action on that issue. So a positive short-term action on that issue instead of a long-term, how do we come together on values and actually make it work for everything? So that's part of it is there's this fragmenting on issues. The other one is there is this unconscious tendency to automatically attack anyone that disagrees with you. And what I mean by that is, so if Donald Trump or Scott Walker or somebody says something that you don't like as a progressive, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to attack them and for the most part, use their own words back at them and then say how stupid they are. Here's the problem with that. First of all, it feels good to do that. Because if you are completely frustrated with what's going on in politics, if you are completely frustrated with Donald Trump and Scott Walker, and you think that what they have done is the worst thing in the history of history, that attack against them makes you feel really good. You get a dopamine release, you know, you're going to have an emotional response that, hey, I got him, I feel better. But cognitively, what you're doing is two things. First of all, you're using their words, so you're reinforcing what they have wanted to say and what they want the discussion to be about, which is bad because that reinforces their worldview and helps them. And the second thing it does is you are now saying to the millions of people that view Donald Trump, for better or for worse, this is reality, who view him as a moral leader and make no mistake The people that still support him, support him because they view him as a moral leader. And if you disagree with that statement, I think if you read anything in the Washington Post, New York Times, Guardian, any decent news source, you're going to find that that's the truth. 
when they interview people to ask why they still support Donald Trump is they view him as a moral leader. You are now saying to all those people that what you hold to be a moral position, you're stupid to hold that moral view. Granted, again, that might make you feel good to say that, but let's do a little empathy exercise here. <laughs> Every time someone tells me that I'm stupid and what I think or that I agree with something stupid, I always like them a lot. Not really. That's sarcasm there, right? But you're seeing where I'm going with it. Sure. Let's say that you hold the belief that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's say that that is your belief. And somebody from afar posts on your Facebook page that you're full of crap. And then let's say they lay out facts to say, here are the facts as to why Jesus can't be the Son of God. What is your response going to be? Unfriend, discontinue the conversation, insult back. Uh, some, one of those things are most likely, I think. Right. And then cognitively and unconsciously, it will harden your position. It will harden your worldview. And there's a huge body of research on this, is that if you attack somebody on what they perceive to be values or moral certitude, that only serves to harden their moral certitude. So what happens when you do that? Now you're just reinforcing and strengthening how much they believe Donald Trump to be a moral leader. And lo and behold, what has been happening? You know, with the shootings, yes, you know, Donald Trump bears responsibility because he's fanned the flames. But I think in, in many ways, as a society, and I'm not saying any one person, but I'm saying societally, how we respond to those words is just as important as those words initially. Because as any psychologist or therapist worth their salt will tell you is that responding with anger and responding with hatred to hatred and anger it does not diffuse the situation. Actually, I think it would be interesting to get commentary from you on my Facebook commentary. I often have dialogues with people of different views than I do. I just did one yesterday related to the people trudging through Mexico seeking asylum at our door. And you notice how I phrased that. I didn't use the other words, right? And I said, I feel compassion for these people. I think you're a compassionate person. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about people who are destitute, oppressed by their government, who are impoverished and have lost family members? How do you feel about that? That calls to me, as opposed to meeting and saying, you know, you're stupid for supporting someone else. And part of that, I'm guided, in my case, by my deep spirituality, by my Quaker outlook. You know, there's the light of God in everyone. I speak to the light in every person. I don't go around trashing darkness, right? That's not my thing. And I think there's a whole large tendency, as you say, in our society to try and thrash the other person we disagree with. And so I can see where that's a real impediment. Do you think that that is particularly heightened on the liberal end of the spectrum, the progressive end of the spectrum? I tend to think that tendency is pretty much equally divided, conservative and progressive. Yeah, it's a human response. But I, I would say that it has been exacerbated by the fact that, again, Trump has changed people's brains. He has people thinking more in terms of fear and isolation. So even if you are a progressive person who believes deeply in community and caring for others, you know, what Trump has done has, and you see it on social media all the time, people are feeling afraid, they're feeling isolated. That creates a very different response to external stimuli. So whereas you might have a really nice person that typically would reach out to others, even strangers, they may respond very differently to something that Donald Trump says because of how they feel in terms of the 
cognitive frame, isolation, fear, and that kind of thing. So they may respond in their self-interest because of that and not even be aware that they're doing that. So it's something to, to be very conscious of and to be aware of the fact that, again, hate and anger has never diffused hate and anger. The other point I was going to make quickly is that Estimates are between 20 and 30% of the people right now who are so ingrained in the conservative worldview and living in that frame um, that you will just never change them. And there's no point in trying to change them. But that doesn't mean that you can't try to reach them on an empathetic level. And, you know, there are things that that can do that. Again, think in terms of in-group empathy. Take it down to a very small personal level. Like, hey, if that was your brother or your nephew who was fleeing Honduras, fleeing the gang crime and the corruption of the Honduras, and and they were struggling to try and find a better life and greater freedom for themselves in this country, what would your response be if it was somebody that you know and love? And try to elicit that initial empathetic response from them and and activate that frame first, because then you can try to translate it outwards. George Lakoff tells a great story about um, graduate journalism students that he used to teach at Berkeley. They would complain about having to go home for the holidays because they were going to get in a fight with their Republican family members or their uncle, who is this really right-wing conservative And they were dreading it because they didn't want to get in a fight over it. And George would always tell them, look, don't get in a fight with your family member because they love you, your family. So don't talk about politics. Just ask them what they do to help others that makes them feel good or makes them proud. And get them to think of empathy on a very personal level. Because again, once empathy is activated, you can't think in your own self-interest. Until you are, again, you can be shifted back into your self-interest, but once you are in it, you can't think in your own self-interest. So use little ways to evoke empathy to get it started. But there are honestly some people that you just are never going to reach, but you don't have to. I wanted to point out a couple places where progressive messaging has had the upper hand and overcome conservative messaging. One is the case of the kids being torn away from their parents. The empathy and the outpouring of concern from people across the political spectrum was enormous, and the policy got backpedaled quite quickly. I think that was a perfect example of an effective progressive message capitalizing on empathy. Yes, definitely. That was a perfect example of empathy. You know, the people fleeing Honduras to come to this country for a better life and future for their children, I mean, I mean, the pictures are far more powerful than any kind of rhetoric. I mean, if you see a picture of kids walking in tattered clothing and struggling, that is really a more powerful cognitive evocation than somebody saying that there's a bunch of criminals coming this way. Because your eyes are going to tell you that these are just kids struggling to get you know, a better life. Yeah, another great example is the change in the gay marriage message from being one of marriage rights for one group of people to being the freedom to love. That was a great example of an intentional change in message to have better framing that really, really boosted people's empathy, not only for people who were gay that wanted to get married, but just 
the, the idea of what love is in general, that everybody should be free to love who they want. And we saw even Republicans and conservatives who were grandparents of, or are parents of people who are gay that wanted to get married make these very moving YouTube videos that went viral. Some of them went viral, and they, they said, we want them to have the same freedom we did. You know, very powerful evoking of empathy. So it does work where it's practiced effectively. And I think another powerful example is the witness of the students from the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School about the Parkland shootings. Their speaking was so moving, so effective, so powerful, and progressive. And they seemed to be bulletproof in terms of their message. I saw some conservative commentators try to attack them, but they got slapped down left and right, too. So I think that's another place where I think the messaging was so powerful and it was on a theme of empathy and connection. Absolutely. And I'm hopeful that the discourse on the whole gun issue can change. I really think it needs to be approached more as a public health issue and the message of protection and responsibility. I I think that changes the discussion away from the fear of having your individual freedom impeded to being one of, look, we have a responsibility to protect people from being harmed in the same way as we have the freedom to use these guns to hunt and for target practice and sport and things like that. But that freedom comes with a responsibility, just like for the reasons that we have other public health initiatives. It's about protection and you know, the freedom to live your life, that's necessary. So I'm hopeful that 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 will happen. It's interesting that that it's not a huge issue, this election, but we'll see. Again, Scott, I met you at the Eau Claire Grassroots Festival sponsored by the Wisconsin Grassroots Network website, wisconsingrassroots.net. You were speaking there to progressives about organizing and messaging, but you have a company called Frame for the Future. How does your company work? What work do you do? Who hires you? And how do you make changes in the world? And do you have to limit who your clientele are? For example, could Scott Walker hire you? I would have a hard time working with him. I mean, I am self-employed, so I get to determine who I do work for. And usually it has to be somebody that believes in progressive values of democracy. Basically what that means is our freedom comes with responsibility for the freedoms of others and that democracy is about citizens caring for each other through the public, simply put. I'm a strong believer that without caring for others, there is no democracy. Because if you only care about your own self-interest, there's not going to be an effective democracy. So people that I work with and work for have to have those values. So that's number one. I've worked with candidates, most recently Mike McCabe's campaign for governor, Kurt Kober's campaign for lieutenant governor. I've worked with 501c3 organizations, community groups. Some are affiliated with the Wisconsin Grassroots Network, as you, you mentioned them. I've done workshops at many county Democratic parties around the state and other progressive groups. So I've I've done work with a lot of diverse groups and organizations and candidates. Even the Victoria Greens in Melbourne, Australia, kept in contact with them a little bit. 
And it's interesting how the Green Party in Victoria, Australia is really very effective. I mean, they have proportional representation, but they're very effective in communicating their message. I was also wondering, Scott, if you do any of your consulting, you offer that, that training. I mean, you have workshops, you have online seminars, you do your work in many different ways. What it says on your website is you do this for organizations, and I'm wondering if you do it for the Boy Scouts or the Jonah, the congregational-based group that's in the Chippewa Valley area, if you've done it for non-political groups, but specifically groups who are trying to make progressive changes and they need to refine their messaging. I have with some environmental groups, some nonpartisan environmental groups, some affiliated with the Sierra Club or some local groups like in Kiwani, fighting all the CAFO stuff there. And I had a goal of wanting to work with religious organizations because I think there's a huge void in the religion community in terms of people that consider themselves progressive, either progressive Christian, progressive Muslim, what have you. And there's a huge void that they could fill. And that is restoring the moral underpinnings of our communities that have been eroded. Again, this idea of self-interest being paramount, whereas community and caring for others is is a very important part of our society. So it's something that I've not had an opportunity to do. I certainly would. And there's nothing preventing that from happening. And keeping it apolitical is very easy to do because we're intrinsically talking about uh, values systems, not political systems. We're talking about value systems and structures. Well, I can only wish you more strength in doing that. Folks, we've been speaking with Scott Whitkoff. I met him at the Eau Claire Grassroots Festival, sponsored by the Wisconsin Grassroots Network. I saw him here back on September 22nd in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, but he's available all around the state and beyond. He works with groups to provide progressive framing through his business, Frame for the Future, website frame, then the digit four, future.com. You don't have to remember that. Just come via nordenspiritradio.org and I'll get you connected with Scott. Scott, thank you for coming to Eau Claire, sharing your message here. Thank you for working with the schools. I know that you worked on a paper there and people will find that on your website. Thank you for bringing compassion, empathy, connection into our society because we're so short on it right now. We know that there's a message we want to get out there and you can make all the difference by sharing George Lakoff's and other people's insights into how we can do this best. Thank you for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much for having me and thanks for all the work that you do to get the word out. This is a critically important time. Again, go to frame, the digit four, future.com or just find it on nordenspiritradio.org. Big thanks to Catherine Thomas for production help on today's program, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh